So as I mentioned before, we're going to be four weeks in a topical series on the presence of God, because that has very much to do with Christmas. Every year, we have to diligently remind our children that Christmas is not about presents. Christmas is not about presents. It's, it's ultimately about God's gift, God's present to sinful humanity. This gift was God's actual presence wrapped in human flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word, who is Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about presence. Not with a T-S on the end, but presence with a C-E. Christmas is about the presence of God. And not simply God's omnipresence, that the fact that God is everywhere present, but God's manifest presence. Christmas is about God mysteriously, miraculously manifesting his presence in human flesh, in Jesus Christ, and dwelling among us on earth. And so the aim of our study over the next four weeks will be to examine what does Christmas have to do with presence? Not the presence on your wish list again, but the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. And so starting this morning, we're going to begin tracing the theme of God's manifest presence throughout Scripture, and we will begin from creation and work our way, Lord willing, to the incarnation. Now why? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing a study on the manifest presence of God? Well, aside from the fact that as I've said, Christmas is ultimately about God's manifest presence. Let me give you three additional reasons I'm excited about this study, and I hope you are too. First, we need God to give us a better understanding of his manifest presence. This is a doctrine that is very often misunderstood. If you just Google the manifest presence of God, you are likely to be inundated with scores of charismatic sources, blogs, sermons, articles that talk a lot about spiritual experience, but without any solid biblical doctrine. And I believe that's a shame. I think that's tragic, because this is a doctrine that must be well understood, and we cannot afford to simply abandon this doctrine to those who do not properly understand it. Secondly, we need God in this study, this is another reason I'm excited about it, to give us a sense of wonder for his manifest presence. We so frequently mention the presence of God, acknowledging his presence in our songs, in our prayers, in every sermon. We often talk about the presence of God, but we seldom think about it. And it's very easy then to lose our wonder for God's manifest presence. Really what we find in scripture is that this reality ought to overwhelm us. It ought to overwhelm us with the reality that God is there. And we want him to overwhelm us in the same way he has many of his people throughout history. A third reason I'm excited about this study is that we need God to give us a desperate desire to manifest his presence to us. Whatever you have, as far as material possessions, whatever your qualities, whoever you are, you're missing out on life, according to the Bible, if you're not enjoying the presence of God. Because the Bible teaches that you were made for this to live in constant communion with your creator. And there's a reality that that can happen on this side of eternity. That God wants this to be a present reality in your life. 
Simply put, you were meant to live in the presence of God. And my prayer is that this Christmas, God will give us a desperate desire to live in light of his manifest presence. That is, a desire to live knowing that he is there. I'm looking forward then to what God has in store for us. I hope you are too. Let's begin this study with asking our Lord's help. Our Father, we come to you in prayer and we approach you in the name of your Son, Jesus. We are gathered here to worship you here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I confess at the outset that I'm not worthy to bring your word to your people, yet I claim the atoning blood of your Son. I thank you for Jesus Christ and his blood and the power of your Holy Spirit. And I trust that you will empower your servant to preach your words as you have commanded. Enrich your understanding of your manifest presence. Enrich our understanding of the incarnation. And we ask that you would move every heart in our midst. Help us better worship our Savior. Teach us to hunger after your presence. To know and to feel that you are there and to live accordingly. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by December of 1943, the United States was in the midst of an all-out war and with so many soldiers overseas in Africa, Europe, the islands of the Pacific, Christmas just wasn't going to be the same that year for so many families. These men overseas could send and receive letters from family members, but more than all the letters in the world, more than any presents or holiday food, more than the lights, and all the Christmas music, most of these men simply wanted to be home. They just wanted to be home for Christmas. And this is why the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, written and recorded in 1943, before the soldiers overseas, immediately became a national and really worldwide sensation. Because presence matters. And whatever you make of the Christmas holiday season, whether you choose to celebrate it in particular or not, one thing's for sure, it's a great time for getting together with friends and family and enjoying one another's company. Actually, the number one reason, or one of the number one reasons, so many people are depressed over the holiday is, in addition to unrealistic expectations and financial stress, it's the inability to be physically present with those we love. Physical presence is important to us. We sing about it. We stress about it. We dream about it. We plan for it. And we pay great sums of money to make it happen. We buy expensive plane tickets just to fly out for a weekend or a week of a trip over the holidays. Arranging travel plans because presence matters. You see, as embodied beings, we can't escape the need for physical presence. It doesn't matter if you live in the first century or the 21st century. Presence matters to us. Our humanity requires physical presence. Now, God is different. God, our creator, is a spirit. And he is not confined to a body like us. God is not limited by time or space. He is what theologians call omnipresent. We see that clearly in scripture. He is everywhere present at the same time. We can't fit our finite minds around that. Theologians also call this God's essential presence because the fact that God is everywhere present is essential to his nature. It is part of his essence as God. But in the Bible, we see there is clearly another sense in which we are to understand God's presence. And this is what we call the manifest presence 
of God. The manifest presence of God. You see, we can't go anywhere from God's essential presence, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, but there's a sense in which God manifests his presence to certain people at certain times in certain places. And there's also a sense, as we read through the Bible, that God withdraws his presence from certain people at certain times in certain places. This is the manifest presence of God. For instance, while God is everywhere present, we know that theologically, we see in Scripture that God is present in heaven in a way he is not in hell. Or even though God is everywhere present, when Jesus Christ walked the earth, we understand that God was uniquely manifesting his presence in bodily form. He was uniquely manifest in the body of Jesus Christ in a way he wasn't elsewhere. The Bible also shows us that the Lord often manifests his presence in symbols, images, and, and or physical barriers. That is, we often see God shrouding or mediating his presence through a pillar of cloud or through a fire, like in the burning bush, or through thunder on Mount Sinai and ultimately in human flesh, in the body that our Lord would use in earth. These symbols are not essential to God's nature, but they are, we could say, God's visible cues that he has come in a remarkable way. And other times we see that God's manifest presence is simply evident by its powerful effect. There may not be a fire. There may not be the thunder. We may not see Jesus Christ walking visibly in our midst. But God's manifest presence can be evidenced, we could say. It is manifest in every genuine spiritual awakening or genuine revival that has ever occurred throughout human history. That is, every revival that has occurred across the globe throughout history is simply in effect of the same cause. What's happening there? It's God manifesting in some greater measure his presence. That is God's sovereign prerogative. True revival, true spiritual awakening, it's not the work of some revivalist. It's not the work of a week of special meetings or something like that. There's no secret formula for us to make it happen. True revival, true spiritual awakening is God's sovereign work and it's the simple effect of this reality that God is manifesting himself to man in some unique way. And as awesome as this is, as awesome as God's manifest presence is, I want to encourage us then that in this first part of our four-part series, presence also matters to God. It matters to us, but presence matters to God. That is, in, in our study, I want us to see our God delights to manifest his presence to sinners. And if we had months to survey this, we could examine this in much greater detail, but for our present purposes, we're just going to see three important scenes from the Old Testament that demonstrates the God of the Bible is a God who delights to manifest his presence to sinners. First, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. The first scene takes place at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. This paradise God originally created prior to the advent of sin's curse. And I want you to see in scene one, that God manifests himself to sinners in hiding. This is the first game of hide and seek. 
For the sake of context, let me briefly give you the background. In Genesis chapter 2, God sits Adam and Eve in the garden and gives them responsibility over it as well as the liberty to enjoy themselves. They have access to everything in the garden except for one thing. There is one condition God gives them. They are not to eat of one particular tree in the garden. And there was nothing wrong with the tree. There was nothing wrong with God giving this prohibition. It was a fair and simple test of loyalty. But you know the story. Sometime later, Eve disobeys God. She leads her husband into doing the same. And so for the first time in their existence, humans experience something that we now call guilt. And they immediately realize something is wrong. They try to cover this guilt, try to cover their shame with a makeshift veneer of fig leaves. And that is where we find them in verse 8. Genesis 3 verse 8 says, They heard, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Remarkable. Actually, verse 8 clues us in on the fact that before they sinned, before this moment, God walked with Adam and Eve. Because when Adam and Eve heard these footsteps falling in the garden, they somehow knew it was the Lord. Even though the text does not specifically tell us this, their reaction does suggest that they had heard, they had encountered, they had seen the Lord God manifest himself in the Garden of Eden before. Well, it might blow our minds to imagine that God was literally walking on earth in some embodied form, but even if we should opt to interpret this as some kind of metaphor, we'd only be begging the question about a host of other passages in the Bible where God is uniquely manifesting himself to human beings. And we're going to look at a couple of those instances today where God visibly manifests himself to human beings. I'm just saying, as incredible as it may be, to think that God literally had a habit of going for morning strolls in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, that's exactly what this text is indicating. And the Gospels tell us that when Jesus touched down on earth, God once again walked the earth. This thought isn't so novel to Christianity. According to the Bible, this most incredible encounter with God, the sort of thing that was happening before sin, was actually a part of God's natural order. The present state of affairs is actually what is aboriginal or unnatural. The fact that God is not manifesting his presence on earth right now in some spectacular way as he once did and once again shall, that is unnatural. That shows you the problem we're in with sin. Well, Adam and Eve used to regularly enjoy some embodied manifestation of God's presence, but sadly, they lost this the moment they rebelled against God. Well, now we read that God has come, and in verse 8, our ancestors are terrified. They know God has come, and they're terrified because of their guilt and because they fear God's judgment. But there's a silver lining here that I don't want you to miss. It's subtle, but extremely precious. Let's read verse 8 again, and this time I want you to notice how that after they sinned, God came looking for sinners in hiding. God takes a gracious initiative. Look at Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called 
to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Did God know what the first man and lady had done? Yes. Yes, as part of his essential presence, he was present. He was witness to the very first sinful desire, the very first sinful act. Did God know where the first man and lady were? Did he know where they were hiding? Yes. Well, we might ask, but if God knew where they were hiding, why does he call out and ask, where are you? Well, he does so for the same reason that I'll say, where are you? I'll ask, where are you to my two-year-old? She could be hiding under a blanket at my feet. And I say, where are you? Not because I don't know where she is, but because I want her to know where I am. It's not their location here that God is after. It's a confession. The ever-present God is manifesting his presence here, walking the earth, because he wants Adam and Eve to know where he is. Where are you, he says. And he's inviting them to come forward and confess their sin. So God goes seeking after these sinners. And mark it down, this is a pattern. This is a pattern beginning here in Genesis 3 that carries forward through the rest of the Bible. Everywhere we see sinners coming to God is because God is first taking initiative with sinners. As Jesus would say, Jesus would say to his disciples, you did not seek me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. We love God only for one reason, because he loved us first. Where are you? God seeks. This is the pattern. Sinners run and hide. God seeks and finds. And we can read these words, where are you? As words full of anger, there's certainly anger in these words. If you just go on and read the rest of the chapter, you're going to see that God has some very severe things to say to Adam and Eve as a judgment upon their sin. But there's more to these words than anger. There's also love here. Because God knows what has happened, and yet he does not destroy man immediately. He does not give man the silent treatment. He does not simply wait and withhold himself for human beings to come and confess their sin. He goes looking for sinners. He goes looking for sinners who are hiding. Hiding in guilt. Where are you, he calls. You know, sometimes young people run away from home, it is said, simply because they want attention. Simply because they feel, and I understand the situations are always more complex, but in large part, they feel so unnoticed or unappreciated that we're told they run away from home hoping that someone will come after them and call out, where are you? And here's the sad reality. We've heard it, and if you haven't, you can certainly hear stories of children who ran away from home never to be sought by their parents. That is not our God. He does not relish any sinner's absence. God does not relish your absence. He's not like the parent who bids their child good riddance. God looks for you. God seeks for you. God calls for you. Where are you? Because he desires to manifest his presence to you. So naturally we arrive at this scene first because this is the very first glimpse in all the Bible of God's grace. God giving grace, taking initiative towards sinners. God so did not desire to manifest himself to Adam and Eve 
despite their sin, that he seeks them when they were hiding. I want to show you another important scene in the Old Testament that shows how God delights to manifest his presence to sinners. You can turn over to Genesis 28. Obviously, we're just highlighting some moments where God manifests his presence. We could say much about how God manifests his presence to Abraham. But for sake of time, we're skipping to the case of Jacob. Scene number two, we see God manifest himself to a desperate sinner. A desperate sinner. And to set the stage for the scene, we need to look at Genesis 28 first of all. So I want us to see how that God manifests himself to Jacob, unworthy as he is. You see, Jacob was not at all worthy of standing in God's presence. Just to give you some background, Jacob was a rascal. If you know the story, his name means deceiver, surplanter, heel grabber, and he was true to his name. In Genesis 25, Jacob first exploits his brother Esau's hunger so he could seize the birthright for himself. In chapter 27, Jacob then co-conspires with his mother to trick his father into blessing him instead of his older twin brother Esau. Well, in addition to being a selfish rascal and manipulator, Jacob's a secularist. I, what I mean is that his father's faith aside, there's literally nothing in Jacob's early life to suggest to us that he was a spiritually minded man. If anything, his behavior strikes us as characteristically secular. For example, Genesis 28. Jacob is fleeing from Esau here by journeying to Haran. And one night, when he's all alone and in the middle of nowhere, God, again, takes initiative and speaks to Jacob in this vision and shows him that the transcendent creator is accessible. If you know uh, the vision I'm alluding to here in Genesis 28, this is where Jacob sees a ladder stretching between heaven and earth and the angels of God are ascending up and down and basically God is saying, I, the lofty creator, I, the great God, the creator, I am accessible. There is a way to me and God is the one showing Jacob that way. Now, God shows Jacob this ladder set on earth and he's showing Jacob I'm accessible and this accessible God also promises Jacob here that he will follow Jacob wherever he goes and he will be with Jacob just as he was with Jacob's father, Isaac. That's incredible. But despite this incredible vision now, Genesis 28 gives us several clues that Jacob wasn't very spiritually minded himself. First we see from verse 16 that while God initiates a relationship with Jacob by giving him this vision, Jacob admits in verse 16 he's been completely ignorant of God's presence. When he awakes, we read, he says, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That's telling. Notice also from verse 16, Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You have to read it in context, but we'll, and for sake of time, we can't delve all into it to understand. But while God promises he will be there for Jacob, wherever Jacob goes, Jacob's reaction suggests to us he misses the point. Rather, he's very impressed with the place. This place where he has met God. This Bethel, this is just another clue at how primitive Jacob's understanding of God was. Further, notice verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if, big word, if God will be with me and 
if he will keep me on this journey that I take, and if he will give me food and uh, to eat and garments to wear, and if I return to my father's house in safety, then, then the Lord will be my God. You see, while God says earlier in the vision, I am, and I will, I will, I will, I will, I will be with you wherever you go, Jacob. Jacob says to God, God, if, 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 if you do this, 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 then you will be my God. Actually, in verse 22, then, we see Jacob even offering to give God a tenth of what God gives to him. And while I believe we have to give Jacob the benefit of doubt here, I believe this is all very sincere on his part, he's going to have still a lot to learn, that God's after a whole lot more than 10%. Now turn over to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, 20 years later. We find Jacob leaving Haran on his way home and on a mission to be reconciled with his long estranged brother Esau, who formerly wanted to kill him two decades before. And when Jacob receives word that Esau is coming to meet him and his family, he hears that Esau is coming with 400 men. So naturally he begins to panic because he believes and has good reason to believe that Esau means to spill blood here. Well, remembering how that God once manifested himself so spectacularly in that vision 20 years before at Bethel and promised that he would be there always for Jacob, Jacob begins to cry out to God. He, he basically gets alone with God here in, in chapter 22, and he, he's basically saying, where are you, God? You ever been there? Maybe you're there this morning. Well, Jacob, even admits to God, he says, I'm worthy in this prayer. He says, I'm worthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to me. That's true. Jacob was not worthy of standing in God's presence, but the God who once manifested himself to Jacob delights to do so again. And by revealing himself again, God is going to make of Jacob a new man. He's bringing Jacob to the place where he wants him to change his life. Look at Genesis 32. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, likely in a state of desperate prayer. After all, there was nothing else he could do at this point, but wait. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. That is a very odd transition. <laughs> How do we suddenly go from Jacob alone here, presumably, in a state of prayer with this invisible, unseen God. And suddenly, he goes to this physical wrestling match with this visible stranger. I mean, this text is extremely odd. This is one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. But the text is plain that this was no ordinary human encounter. This was a divine encounter. And whether or not Jacob initially realized this, it's clear that sooner or later he recognizes God, the creator, the one I've been crying out to, has come. He's manifesting himself again. And I am wrestling with the Lord. Imagine that. Verse 25, when he saw, this is the stranger, that he had not prevailed against him, that is against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. 
after wrestling for some period of time, this divine stranger simply touches Jacob's thigh, and Jacob is immediately debilitated. There's simply no way that you can win a wrestling match with a dislocated hip. And the manner that in which this happens only confirms that Jacob is wrestling a supernatural being. God, again, is manifesting himself in an unusual way. He's invading this world. And verse 26 says that this man says to Jacob, let me go. Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Of course, you can't possibly win a wrestling match with a dislocated hip. Jacob knows that. He knows he has no hope of winning. He knows he's beat. But he knows this too, that God has come. That he is now holding on to God. And he is holding on to God for all he is worth. And Jacob won't let go of God. Do you see it? Do you see what's happening here? Jacob is not indifferent. Jacob can't live without God anymore. And when this divine stranger sees Jacob's heart, his desperation, that he won't go on life, on in life, he won't go on in life without God, he gives Jacob a new name, Israel. Having become desperate for God, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. It means prince of God. He's no longer the, the deceiver. He was the, this deceiver, this heel grabber, this cunning manipulator, is now a prince of God. And in the Bible, a new name often, always, nearly always, symbolizes a new identity, a new beginning. When God manifests himself in the flesh to Jacob, Jacob realizes, as unworthy as he is, this is it. This is what life's about. And he holds on to God for dear life. And as a result, this wrestling match ends with changing Jacob's life forever. He will never be the same man again. The New York Times once reported a true story of a small jet pilot named Henry Dempsey who turned the controls over to his co-pilot in order to investigate a rattling noise at the back of the plane. But as Dempsey reached the tail section, some turbulence tossed him against the rear door, which was improperly latched prior to takeoff. This is a true story. The door flew open. Dempsey was instantly sucked out of the tiny jet. The co-pilot reported that the pilot had fallen out and wanted a helicopter to immediately search the area. But after the plane's emergency landing, the ground crew found Dempsey holding for dear life to the outdoor ladder of the aircraft. Somehow he had caught the ladder and held on for 10 minutes as the plane flew 200 miles per hour from an altitude of 4,000 feet. And then when landing, managed to keep his head from hitting the runway, which was only 12 inches away. According to reports, it took airport personnel several minutes just to pry Dempsey's fingers free from the ladder. How about you? You hold on to God like that. Holding on to God for dear life, for all your worth. Are we desperate for God to know him, to know his presence like that? I doubt any of us are. But as one of my mentors used to say, if you can live without God, you will. If you can live without God, you will. Beloved, God desires to meet with you. Do you desire? Do you have that kind of a desperation? God was bringing 
this man to a place where he would desire to meet with him like God desired to meet with this man. Please turn lastly to Exodus 3. We've seen two scenes that demonstrate how our God delights to manifest his presence to sinners. Let me briefly show you a third. These are all very memorable, very remarkable scenes in the Bible. Scene number three, we see God manifests himself to a broken sinner. To a very weak man. Jacob, or Israel's sons, all came to live in the land of Egypt. And they prospered. And they had many descendants. And those descendants had many descendants. And with time there arose a pharaoh in Egypt who despised and exploited these Israelite foreigners. These who were immigrants who were living there. First they were coerced into slave labor. And then eventually the Egyptians began conducting genocide against the Israelite male males that were born in an effort to prevent them from becoming too numerous. But providentially, one of these Israelite boys would escape destruction. He would be given an Egyptian name, the name Moses, and he would be raised in Pharaoh's own household. And Moses ultimately chooses to identify, when he's of age, he chooses to identify with his Israelite brethren in their oppression rather than all the riches of Egypt. Well, unfortunately for Moses, the Israelites aren't exactly ready to follow him when he supposes. And so Moses is driven. He is forced to flee to the land of Midian into what many would call a God-forsaken wilderness. And there he takes up a living. Imagine that. He goes from the palace to the desert. I mean, he's on top of the world, and the next he's in the gutter. Forty years pass. Forty years forgotten. Forty years. If ever Moses thought he was going to make it in life, that ship has sailed. I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but no doubt someone here listening, someone listening is struggling with where God has you right now in life. And if you voiced your thoughts, maybe it would be something like this. God, I am in the middle of nowhere and I don't like it. And you're making a big mistake with my life. Of course, we don't know Moses had these exact thoughts, but I do want to show you one thing is clear, that God desires to manifest his power through a broken life. Notice Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. We read, now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Moses doing his routine thing as a shepherd and as he's following one of these animals he's uh, lost care of he sees this bush fire and it turns out to be the most terrifying bush fire ever not because it's a fire raging out of control but because Moses soon recognizes that God the God who has manifested himself to Jacob to Adam and the God of creation this God is now speaking to him from this flame. Verse 4. 
When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. He probably called the second time because the first time Moses was in shock. And Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, then God said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This isn't just any God. This is a God who has revealed himself in time, space, history. He's not whatever God that you want to make of him. This is the God who speaks the God who's always been there. The God who now manifests himself to Moses. And we're told at the end of verse 6 that Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Moses immediately understood the God of creation is manifesting his presence to me in this holy flame. And God informs Moses that he intends to deliver the Israelites. Moses' brethren from out of Egypt. Well, I'm sure Moses was excited about that, but in verse 10, God gets to his point. He says, therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring up my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, as I've said, Moses was at this point a broken man. He was a very weak man. Consider, there are five excuses that Moses makes why he can't do what God calls him to do. And we don't have time to look at all these, but I'll just boil it down for you. The first thing he tells God is he says, I'm inadequate for the task. <laughs> I, I don't know enough, God. I, I don't know what will I say in this situation. Uh, people won't take me seriously. Oh, I, I'm not good with words. I have an impediment, Lord. I, I have a weakness. I need an exemption. And ultimately he comes to say simply, please, God, please. Send someone else. You're making a mistake. You got the wrong guy. All of this just goes to show Moses was a broken man who lacked confidence in himself. But that, at least, is what God wanted. He wanted a man who would have to lean wholly on his divine power. So the real problem wasn't Moses' lack of self-confidence, but that Moses here in this situation far, far, far underestimates the power of God. He far underestimated the power of God's manifest presence. And God would bring Moses from doubting ultimately that, that he could play any role in this mission impossible to becoming one of the greatest leaders in all of human history. That's remarkable. How is that? How do we have a guy that is so unqualified, feels so broken, that he's such a nobody, and the next moment he's doing the most incredible one of the most incredible things in history? The answer is because God's presence on any life is powerful. It is life-changing. It is dynamic. God is in the business of transforming people. And this is not an exception. This is the rule. 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things, the base things, the despised things God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now I understand that these three uh, scenes here are just a sampling. They are just a sampling of scores of places throughout the Bible where God manifests himself to sinners. But these three instances we looked at aren't exceptional. At least they aren't exceptional as far as the principle that God delights to manifest himself to people like you. That is the rule. 
That's what God desires. God has been showing us repeatedly throughout the biblical storyline that he desires to manifest himself to sinners. And we know that. And we could take that seriously ultimately because there never was a more plain evidence of this than in Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. God taking upon himself the form of a human being. More than anything we see, the incarnation proves God doesn't desire to keep himself aloof, doesn't desire to conceal himself, doesn't desire to hide from his creation and let his creation go to hell, but God desires to manifest himself to sinners in need. Presence matters to God. Our God delights to manifest his presence to sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God desires to manifest his presence to you? In closing, do you realize that God always takes initiative? He's the ultimate seeker. He seeks us before we seek him. And here's why that's comforting. Because maybe like Adam, you're doubtful that God will even receive you. You have this guilt, you have this sin, and, and you're, you're running and hiding. And that's the pattern of your life. You're hiding from God. But let me encourage you this morning. If you are desirous to meet with God, there's only one reason that is. Are you listening? There's one reason because God is already desirous to meet with you. He's given you that desire. Don't get hung up on some kind of charismatic secret formula for encountering God, feeling God, discovering God. Rather, cast yourself on the grace of God. The same grace of God that scriptures tell us makes us alive in Jesus Christ. That is always the same reviving grace of God. Secondly, do you have a cold, casual, or indifferent attitude toward a meaningful interaction with God. Maybe like Jacob, you're very accustomed to just kind of living, just kind of making it in life without God. Trying to manipulate your circumstances in life in order to live without desperate dependence on God. Reminds me of a, a Chinese pastor who visiting America was asked, what impressed you most about America? And he replied, all the great things Americans can do without God. Does that describe your life? Or are you desperate for God to manifest his presence to you in his word, on your knees in prayer? Are you desperate for him to pour out his favor on your life? Finally, have you come to doubt the power of God and the difference that his presence can make in your life? Maybe you feel like your life is going nowhere. God's forgotten you. Or maybe like Moses, you feel that you're just so inadequate for the tasks, the situations, the responsibilities that God has placed upon you. Realize, when God manifested his presence to Moses, he did so with power. Power that would change Moses' life. Power that would change an entire nation. Power that would free millions of people out of slavery and set them at liberty. Next week, we're going to continue examining what the Bible has to say about the manifest presence of God. And again, we're, we're, we are working our way to the incarnation, okay? I know we didn't get that far. Today we've seen God's desire to manifest himself. That is God's disposition. He desires to show himself, to reveal himself to humanity, as simple as we are. But next week we intend to look at how God grants access, a way of access into his presence. Let's conclude with prayer.